Well, Gabriel Hurls, young Gabriel Hurls, was turning six years old. And like many six-year-olds do, they wanted to have, he wanted to have a birthday party. And so he invited some of his friends over, and he had told them, you know, some of the things that he wanted for his birthday. So he was expecting certain presents, like Lego sets. I used to love Lego sets as a kid. Um, video games, if his friends were being uh, feeling extra generous. Uh, action figures, different uh, sports apparel and equipment. But Gabriel was not expecting to get that massive present that was standing off in the corner of the living room. He didn't even notice it at first. In fact, he was so busy with eating cake and enjoying the party with his friends, opening the other gifts. He didn't notice until one of his friends said, hey, look at that big present over in the corner. What's that? Must be for you. He ran over, started to unwrap it. The excitement was killing him. He couldn't unwrap it fast enough. You know, what could this be? Maybe it's a new bike. I mean, the package was twice as big as he was. Maybe it's a, a new basketball hoop for the, for the backyard that I've been begging mom and dad for. What could it be? And he finally opened it up. And what he got was better than he could have ever expected. It was his dad. His dad, Army Specialist Casey Hurls, who was on leave from the war in Iraq. Gabriel and his father had been apart for almost a year. And when his father, Casey, learned that his leave would coincide with his son's birthday, he just had to give him this surprise. You know, we have a father, a heavenly father, who I also think loves giving us surprises, loves to work and do things in unexpected ways. Don't you find that to be the case as you read through Scripture? As I turn the pages of God's Word, I see story after story of God doing the unexpected, like using an old washed-up couple to give birth to a nation using a stutterer to be the spokesman to Pharaoh to free that nation, using uh, an adopted orphan girl to turn her into the queen to save that nation, using a shepherd boy to slay a giant and then go lead that nation, and so many more examples like that. And then, of course, there's God himself, the creator and sustainer of the universe, the alpha, the omega, the beginning and the end, showing up and working in ways that also surprise me, like how he would come here to be with us as a baby wrapped in a manger. How he would give us the opportunity to choose eternal life by laying down his own. The more you read and reread scripture, at least for me, the more I find to expect the unexpected with God. And I think there's some powerful examples of that in this next chapter in our series on Acts. Would you open with me to Acts chapter 2? We're going to get into the story today. There's so much in this chapter. We could never go through all of it, every single bit of it, um, in just one sermon. But we're going to look at a few things that I think surprise us, that maybe are unexpected. Starting in verse 1, the text will, of course, be on the screen, but I encourage you to look at it in whatever format or translation of God's word you have before you. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like a blowing, violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. 
They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now there were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one had heard in their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in our native language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun and said they are having too much wine or have had too much wine. We'll pause there for the moment. What a spectacular scene. The Holy Spirit has rushed through this house like a violent wind. Tongues of fire coming out of the sky, resting on them. Seems like that's what it is. And, and everyone who has traveled far and wide to come to the Feast of Pentecost can understand the wonders of God being declared in their native language. Now, all of this probably sounds kind of strange to our modern sensibilities. Kind of weird. Wind, fire, tongues. But this may not have seemed so out of the ordinary to those that were gathered there. Wind and fire, after all, were common biblical symbols for the activity of the Holy Spirit. The Greek and Hebrew words, um, of course, also can mean spirit or breath, or wind or breath for spirit. You may recall in stories like in Ezekiel, when the valley of dry bones, wind and breath come to give life to the dried bones. And after that, God says, I will put my spirit in you and you will live. You may recall his conversation with Nicodemus where he says, being born of the spirit is like hearing the sound of a blowing wind. Wind and God's presence, they, they kind of go together. It's not an, a unique type of symbol for his presence. Moreover, fire is also a powerful symbol of the presence of God we see over and over in scripture, like the burning bush that Moses talked to there on the mountain, the pillar of fire that led the Israelites through the desert. So as weird as these manifestations seem to us, they would have brought, I think, clarity to the disciples that this is God who is with us. This is God who is working. It's his presence. But what I imagine was probably unusual, what probably not very many people expected, was what the Holy Spirit then enabled these particular disciples to start doing speaking in different languages. Did you catch how surprised the crowd was by this also? They say in verse seven, utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? Maybe some of you have heard this before, but those of you, or those that were inhabitants of Jerusalem kind of looked down a little bit on people from Galilee. They kind of saw them as sort of this backwoods kind of hillbilly sort of folk, and, and their accent was kind of funny. They uh, talked in this dialect that made them sort of swallow their sounds as they talked. 
So if God was going to do this miraculous thing where he was going to communicate his wonders to so many people from so many parts of the world in all these different languages, Galileans would probably be the last people that you would pick to do this. But that's what God does. You got to expect the unexpected with him. I joke with uh, Beamy that if the Holy Spirit did this miracle exactly in the same way today, it would not be through the people from the Philippines. Because I feel like in the Philippines, they already know how to speak in tongues. There's like hundreds of dialects. And I can remember when we were newly married, took my first trip to the Philippines. My mother-in-law is actually here today um, to go visit my mother-in-law's family, my father-in-law's family. I was determined to learn some Filipino phrases to be able to impress my relatives. And you know, the national language in the Philippines is Tagalog, but then my father-in-law is from a whole different island that's a different dialect. My mother-in-law is from a different island from him that's a whole other dialect. And sometimes the aunts and uncles have migrated to other islands that have different dialects that they learn. And we would all get together and I was so confused because they were mixing all three and sometimes some English and sometimes some other dialects. I had no idea how to effectively communicate with them. So I don't think God would choose people from the Philippines to, to speak in tongues today because I feel like they already have that gift. I feel like he would pick somebody like me, an American native English speaker who had a terrible time learning language. I was a terrible Spanish student in high school and had a terrible accent. And I, I would be the last person you would want to do something like this. And that's who God chooses, these Galilean disciples. But we know that these disciples weren't just unexpected choices in this moment. They were unexpected choices from the very beginning. When Jesus first called them, remember, he finds some of them already fishing, right? Uh, already taking over the family business. In first century Palestine, the ideal career for most young Hebrews was not taking over the family business already, but to be under the tutelage of a rabbi. The brightest of boys, those who shined in Hebrew school and who stood out in their memorization of the Torah, would upon completion seek a rabbi, and if they made the cut, they would spend the next few years tagging along as disciples. So to be a young man already embedded in the family trade meant that in all likelihood, you were not the cream of the crop in Hebrew school. You did not have what it takes to run with the rabbis. You were the leftovers. You were those kids that weren't picked on the playground by the captains. And Jesus doesn't cherry pick the brightest kids from other rabbis, rabbis to build a dream team. He doesn't even take the normal route and allow the best and brightest to choose him. Instead, Jesus goes on a mission looking for the leftovers. And it was through these unschooled tradesmen that God would ignite a spiritual movement that would spread throughout the globe and last for millenniums. If you have ever felt inadequate unqualified, meager, deficient, or like a leftover, please know that is not what God sees when he looks at you. Let me remind you what God sees when he looks at you from Paul's second chapter in his letter to the Ephesians, verse 10. For we are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus so we can do the good things 
He has planned for us all along. When God sees you and me, he sees someone so precious. He sees his handiwork, his masterpiece, endless possibilities and potential. But then there's something else that happens in this text that surprises me, that is unexpected, and that is that some people that were gathered there rejected the message. I mean, doesn't this miracle seem so unmistakably awesome and authentic? Wind, fire, speaking in tongues. If you were there, you would have been hearing it in your own native language. How could you not understand that something miraculous is going on? How much clearer can God get? How much more tangible could his power be displayed? His goodness be clearly communicated? Yet in the face of such a spectacular miracle, some choose not to believe. Some choose not to repent and even mock what's happening. Verse 13 of Acts chapter 2, I'll read it to you again. Some, however, made fun of them and said they have had too much wine. It seems far-fetched that the goodness and the power of God, which is so clearly shared, would be rejected. But that's an unfortunate thing that sometimes happens when we try to be his witnesses. I gotta tell you, family, I would have never expected that when I shared with you the truth so clearly of the miraculous taste-enhancing powers of mayonnaise, that you would reject it so, and reject it so vehemently. I had some people saying, Pastor, I'm with you with the chocolate chips, but to the mayonnaise I say, get behind me, Satan. Some of you maybe weren't here last week, and you're like, what in the world is he talking about? I like mayonnaise. I don't eat it that often, but anyway, I like it in a lot of stuff. It is hard to think how when the truth is presented so clearly that people could reject it. Have you ever had that experience? You tell about what God's done in your life, and it's not well-received. Maybe you're even mocked for it. It's not something we hope for, of course. It's not something we try to cause, but it's part of the reality of sharing the good news of the kingdom of God. Some people won't find it good. And that can get discouraging, disheartening. But what I find encouraging from the text is that Peter, like, doesn't bat an eye. He, he doesn't miss a beat. He doesn't let this throw him off course. Look what he, he does in verse 14. Then Peter stood up with the 11, raised his voice, and addressed the crowd, fellow Jews and all who live in Jerusalem. Let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These people are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. And I won't take time to read the rest of it although, you know, probably we should because it's such a wonderful sermon that Peter goes into all about Christ. He, he references the book of Joel and shows how this is an outpouring of God's presence, how judgment is coming, and uh, salvation is only through Christ. And he talks about the identity of Christ. He shares a reference from, from Psalms and, and talks about who Jesus is, his sacrifice on the cross, how death could not hold him and how we need to turn our lives over to him, repent and receive forgiveness and receive the gift of his Holy Spirit. It is a powerful sermon centered all around Jesus. And you read in the text that it cut people to the heart and many chose to give their lives 
to the Lord that day. 3,000, it says, was the number. And what is so fascinating to me is that it seems like it was the rejection and mockery that seems to prompt Peter to preach. As the old commentator J.A. Alexander put it, I have a quote on the screen for you, it was this frivolous aspersion rather than the serious inquiries of the devout Jews that gave occasion to the great apostolical discourse which follows. In other words, it was motivated by those who said, they must be drunk. Peter says, no, let me tell you the truth about what this is. When unexpected rejection and opposition comes, it's hard not to get discouraged by it, but maybe if we anticipate it, maybe if we embrace it, God can use that opposition as an opportunity to bring him glory. I was reading in Philip Yancey's book called Finding God in Unexpected Places. I want to read to you a little bit um, from his experience with interviewing this one missionary. He said, my job as a writer affords me the opportunity to visit a variety of countries, including some that oppress Christians. I have noticed a striking difference in the wording of prayers. When difficulties come, Christians in affluent countries tend to pray, Lord, take this trial away from us. I have heard persecuted Christians and some who live in very poor countries pray instead, Lord, give us the strength to bear this trial. Curious, I asked an old-time missionary who has made dozens of trips to visit unregistered houses, house churches in China if Christians there prayed for a change in restrictive government policies. He replied that not once had he heard a Chinese Christian pray for relief. They just assume they'll face opposition, he said. They can't imagine anything else. He then gave some examples of the opposition. One pastor had served a term of 22 years at hard labor for holding unauthorized church meetings. When he emerged from prison and returned to church, he announced that he had kept a daily count on his dangerous job and had coupled together one million railroad cars without an injury. God answered your prayers for my safety. He rejoiced. Working near the Russian border without warm clothing, he also avoided serious illness all the time. Another imprisoned pastor heard that his wife was going blind. Desperate, he reported to the warden that he was renouncing his faith. He was released but soon felt so guilty that he again turned himself into the police where he spent the next 30 years in prison. Wow. I am so grateful for the religious freedom that we're really spoiled with here in this country. And when I think about some of the opposition I might face for my faith, it pales in comparison to this. And yet, so often my prayers are along the lines of, God, get rid of this opposition, (laughs) rather than, Lord, can you figure out a way to get me through it? Can you figure out a way to use this as an opportunity for me not to get discouraged, but for your work to continue? to progress. And then there's one more unexpected occurrence I want to bring to your attention from this story in Acts today. And that is how the Holy Spirit can provide such unity, can bring so many different kinds of people together, even though they are so different. You know, I would suspect that the wonders of God could have been sufficiently communicated just in the Greek language. 
That, after all, was the common language of the day, kind of like how English might be, we could say, is the common language around the world today as people do business. If you wanted everyone to understand the message, the wonders of God, Greek would have sufficed. So why all the different languages? Why the speaking in tongues? I want to read to you again from the commentator I quoted last week, Ajith Fernando. I think he gives us some insight into answering that question. He says, the significance of this work of the Spirit in a world torn by cultural disharmony has been presented powerfully. And then he quotes uh, sometimes uh, this British pastor, Roy, uh, Baptist pastor, Roy Clements. He notes how important to people their their, uh, culture is. Different movements have tried to create a single world order, but in doing so, they are implicitly imperialistic involving the domination of one culture over another. Even with Islam, the unity that is forged is dominated by Arab culture and language. But as Clements goes on to say, culture refuses to be dominated in that way. He asks, is there a power that can unify the divided nations of the earth without subjugating them? Is there a way of making people one without at the same time making them all the same? To which he answers, it is precisely that sort of unity which the Holy Spirit brings. And he declares his intention in the matter right at the beginning on the day of Pentecost by the miracle he performed. Have you ever thought about how this is a moment where it's a total reversal of what happened at the Tower of Babel, where people had different languages and were scattered, but now people with different languages, different cultural backgrounds, They're not becoming the same, but yet they are one. Is there a way of making people one without at the same time making them all the same? Yeah, the presence of God. Isn't that the impression that you get as you read the closing verses in this chapter? Look at the kind of unity that the outpouring of the Holy Spirit brings. In verse 42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teachings and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to one another who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Only the presence of Jesus Christ could do something like that. Family, we are at a place in our world today where people seem so divided and unity only seems possible through uniformity. Our society was already struggling with this, being so polarized before COVID came on the scene. (laughs) And now it's like reached whole new levels that are just, it's just hard to wrap my mind around. You should get vaccinated. You should not get vaccinated. Masks are helpful. Masks are useless. The government is overreaching. The government is not reaching far enough. In such polarizing conditions, I would never expect people to be able to come together in unity. Yet here we are, gathered together. Only the Spirit of God can do that. 
you know, family, I've been here for over a year now. Starting to settle in. It's feeling good. Feeling good to be here. Part of this family. And that means I've gotten to know much of you so much better. Still, still getting to know you. But I, I've already heard a lot of your views and opinions and convictions and on lots of different things, not the least of which the current situation we're all dealing with. And when I get up here on Sabbath morning, it's so beautiful. I get up here and I see just a, a sea of diversity of thought. And yet here we are. You know what I love about uh, this, these famous verses in Acts chapter two at the end? You don't read anything like they were all in agreement in their opinion of the Roman government or emperor. They were in one accord on foreign policy. They were in lockstep on matters pertaining to public health. It doesn't say anything like that. It says they prayed together, studied scripture together, praised God together, broke bread together with glad and sincere hearts. Now, it does say that they had all things in common, but don't, don't read into that like they all thought the same. That's not what it means, because in the Greek, it literally means they just shared everything together. They thought that what belonged to them belonged to everybody, as evidenced by the next verse that comes, right? They sell whatever they need to in order to meet the needs of each other. That's what it means by being in common, having everything in common. I would guess that they had various opinions and convictions regarding culture and politics. In fact, we don't have to read very far in the book of Acts to see some of those differences surface and cause division. And I'm not even just talking about when the Jews and the Gentiles are trying to learn how to worship together, even amongst some of the, the Jewish leaders. I mean, Barnabas had to step in and, and create some peace and, and find a way forward. It's, it, we often look at this part and think, oh, this is what we've got to get back to. And, and sure, we should strive to get back to this moment described here at the end of Acts. But they had their problems too. They had their issues with unity as well. But you know what keeps bringing them together, what unifies them now, and what will unify them in the challenging moments ahead is the presence of Jesus, the Holy Spirit. And family, I don't know how long we're going to have to keep meeting with these kinds of conditions, how long COVID's going to influence how we gather together. I wouldn't have guessed it would last this long. It might be a while longer which means there will likely be some policies, some formats under which we gather together because of that that we are not going to all agree with. And you would expect that over time, that would just divide us more and more. But you know what? I have come to expect the unexpected when God's presence is involved. And if we keep our focus on the presence of Christ as we gather, we're going to get more and more as one as we move forward together, not apart. You know, family, one of the things I learned from the outpouring of the Holy Spirit here in this chapter is that with God, you've got to expect the unexpected. 
like how he sees unqualified, inadequate people, people like me, people like you, as this masterpiece somehow, and will do wonders through us. He may not, you know, do something as miraculous as causing us to speak different languages all at once to people. That's certainly not my gift. But if you allow his presence, if you make the choice to open up your heart to his presence in your life, there are going to be ways that he uses you where you are not qualified, where you are inadequate for him to do it. But that's what he does. Like how he can turn even opposition into opportunities for his kingdom and like how he can bring such unity amid such diversity. So my appeal to you today is simply make his presence your priority. And you can start to expect some of these unexpected occurrences in your life. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, what a promise that you are never far away and that uh, we are forever safe in your presence. Lord, we want to commit today to making you and your Holy Spirit our anchor, our anchor in our life, our anchor in our, our church family life, Lord, everything that we do. Lord, may it cause us to realize that you could use even us to do things for your kingdom. May it help us know how to get through the times of opposition and difficulty. And, and Lord, may it most of all unify us like only your spirit can. In Jesus' name.